Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access not only to our great daily newsletter, but all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in London, England right now. This week on Seneca, we've got an interview with Minister Xu Xueyuan, Deputy Chief of Mission and Minister at the Embassy of the People's Republic of China in Washington, D.C. The interview was taped on Monday, September 19th at the Embassy. Before we get to the interview, I want to be transparent about the process. Minister Xu's team did request questions in advance, and they were all accepted without alteration, except actually to suggest merging two questions, both related to public diplomacy. Uh, questions on subjects like Taiwan or Xinjiang or China's zero COVID policy were all accepted without even any suggestions on wording. Uh, I was able actually to follow up on questions, uh, including some of those on sensitive topics with no objections at all from the minister or her staff. Where Minister Xu cited numbers and made factual claims, I have made a good faith effort to check them. Uh, for example, on the number of acres in the uh, recent offshore oil leases that were approved by the Biden administration. Doubtless, there will be some listeners who wish that I had been more forceful uh, in the questions, and there may be some who believe I was perhaps too forceful, though I doubt that. Seneca is, as you know, not a gotcha show and really never has been. It's not hard talk still. I think there is value in hearing the perspectives of a ranking Chinese diplomat, and I hope you'll agree that the interview is very much worth listening to in that light. The interview that follows has only been edited for clarity and concision, taking out filler or hesitation words and pickups. Enjoy. First of all, thank you very much, Minister Xu, for inviting me to the embassy, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. So you have been working on U.S.-China relations and uh, the United States uh, for well over a decade now, and you have seen how the relationship has changed from the Obama administration through the Trump administration, and now nearly two years into the Biden administration. What is your sense of how the Biden administration's approach to China differs from that of former President Donald Trump? Yeah, actually, many people asked this question to me. Uh, so uh, the U.S. midterm elections are drawing near, which is a midterm exam, as we say, yeah. for the Biden administration by the American people. Perhaps it is time also to give a midterm exam for the Biden administration's China policy as well. Hmm. It's been two years, as you said, that uh, since the uh, Biden administration came into office. But the China policy of the U.S., to be frank, has not stepped out of the shadow of the previous administration. Many people are asking why, uh, including uh, us um, in the Chinese embassy and also many 
um, Chinese officials in Beijing. We believe that the root cause lies in the big problem of U.S. mentality mm. toward China. The U.S. side takes China as the most serious competitor and the most serious long-term challenge. These are exact words they yeah. used to describe the, the uh, uh, China and the, the relationship. This is serious misperception of China-U.S. relations and the misreading of China's development and would mislead people of the two countries and the international community. Many American friends often see their country as open and inclusive. Actually, this is also the perception by many uh, Chinese, actually. Mm -hmm. So, but now uh, we we need to ask two questions. Um, first, does the U.S. accept the development of a major country with different history system and a culture like China? Does it acknowledge that the 1.4 billion Chinese people also have the rights to pursue well-being? As long as these two problems are figured out, many problems in China-U.S. relations can be solved easily. If China really has a so-called long game, <laughs> this, this, word, uh, this expression is frequently used to describe China-U.S. relationship. Yeah, Rush Doshi's book, yeah. <laughs> it is to let all Chinese people lead a good life. That is our long game, I think. We have no interest in hegemony and no intentions to challenge, defeat, or replace the U.S. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, the U.S. is frequently deploying naval and air forces near China's adjacent waters to flex muscles, decoupling with China's economy, oppressing Chinese tech companies, smearing Chinese experts and overseas students, ganging up against China, and even forming an Asia-Pacific NATO, and consistently interfering in China's domestic affairs. I'm not trying to accuse the United States. Actually, these are all actions taken by the United States, and this is how they describe their China policy. Uh -huh exact words they use to describe uh, their China policy. Particularly on the Taiwan question, the U.S. repeatedly violates the one China principle and undermine the, the uh, political foundation for the establishment of China-U.S. diplomatic relations. Mm -hmm. In the eyes of the Chinese people, this is containing and encircling China and preventing them from pursuing a better life. So, where is the way out for China-US relations? Um, we have to um, face this, this question and, and try to answer this question. I think the only right way lies in the three uh, principles pro uh, proposed by President Xi Jinping, uh, which is respect each other, coexist in peace, pursue win-win cooperation. Actually, President Biden agreed those principles when he talked with uh, President Xi Jinping during their uh, telephone conversation in many times. Um, he p uh, responded positively, actually. The two heads of state have reached an, uh, the important consensus on developing China-U.S. relations, and the key lies in implementation. 
We hope that the U.S. side can rectify its、uh, mentality toward China, form a rational perception of China, take concrete actions to implement、uh, President Biden's positive remarks, and put put the、uh, China-U.S. relations back on the right track of healthy and stable development as soon as possible. I think you've put your finger on one very important point, which is this question. Can the United States, as a, a power that really understands itself as exceptional, can it ever actually accept an equal? Can it actually make room for、uh, another country, and especially one, as you say, with such a very different history and a, a very different set of values? And I think that's really the, very much the core of, of the question.、Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Xu. As, as we sit down, President Xi Jinping has just concluded his first overseas trip since the pandemic broke out in late 2019.、Uh, he was in Samarkand for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, and naturally, a lot of the U.S. press has been focused on the meeting between President Xi and President Putin.、Uh, but China has its own agenda, and it's certainly not all about the relationship with Russia.、Uh, there was a lot of effort to read into the remarks that President Putin made about. Uh, China having concerns、uh, and and questions about、uh, its its role in Ukraine. What were China's priorities for this meeting, and what kind of a role does China see for the SCO for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and what does Beijing see for China、uh, as a role within that organization? Oh, this is a very good question. Well, I guess uh, uh, many people,、uh, especially in the Western world.、Uh, They are very interested in this、uh, meeting, in this summit, and especially in the meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Putin. So,、uh, well, let me let me give you a little bit about the history of the、uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. The founding of、uh, we call SCO is a significant event in international relations at the beginning of the 21st century. The SCO. Is a result of China and its neighbors' exploration to establish a new security model,、mm-hmm. a new type of state-to-state relations, and a new type of, <coughs> excuse me, regional cooperation. You know, after the Cold War, China, Russia, and the Central Asian countries all faced、uh, the same common problem of stabilizing the border areas.、Mm-hmm. In 1996. And 1997, China, Russia, Kazakhstan,、uh, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan signed agreements successi- successively, agreeing on building confidence in the military field and a mutual reduction of armed forces in border areas. So、mm-hmm. the focus then was about you know border security. The five countries pursued their own border security in a way. That respects other borders' security interests. So this is very important. After that, the five countries、uh, further expanded their cooperation of common security to combating non-traditional security threats of terrorism, extremism, and separatism, etc. That they all faced. So in 2001, the SCO was founded. And the Shanghai spirit was established 
which features mutual trust, mutual benefit, equality, consultation, respect for diversity of civilizations, and the pursuit of common development. Over the past twenty years, the SCO has、um, continuously deepened cooperation in various fields and traveled a path of cooperation that aligns with regional realities and the needs of all parties. So it evolved quite well、um, over the past twenty-one years. The reason why many problems in the world today occur and drag on is, in, according to our opinion. Is that some countries pursue unilateral security、uh, instead of、uh, common security for all, and they are more interested in their own development、uh, in than、uh, development for all. Which countries do you have in mind? Well, there are many, especially、uh, Western countries.、Uh, questions of the times faced by all countries are whether they want conflict or peace. Confrontation or cooperation, unity or division. The SCO represents a new and a correct choice for international relations, and is worth noting and studying by other countries. We're happy that the United States and U.S. politicians they are they are looking at it.、Um, they are welcome to look at it,、mm-hmm. and hopefully, they can find something that is. Different from their practices, and they find the practices useful for them. China will always, as always, contribute wisdom and strength to SCO because we are one of the founding member. Unremittingly promote building the SCO community for a shared future and make it a more essential platform for member states to seek unity. Uh, promote stability and pursue development. Actually, this platform is becoming more and more attractive because more countries would like to join. But、uh, we are going to be very careful in the choice of new members. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the significance of India and Pakistan both attending this meeting? Well, this is a, a difficult choice.、Um, these are two competing states、right. in, in many areas, especially、uh, on national security issues on border. Uh, issues, but I think there is a consensus、uh, among the current members of SCO that、uh, needs to be expanded. But in the,、uh, I think the choice of new members will be based on more careful discussion and based on consensus. We are looking at a、uh, outcome that is will be acceptable for all current members. Okay. All the attention, of course, that the American press paid、uh, to the Putin Xi meeting was, of course, because there's a lot of interest in China's position in the Ukraine war. That war has now dragged on for nearly seven months since February 24th, and has clearly not gone the way that Vladimir Putin and his military leaders had expected. And I'm sure that many of our listeners want to better understand China's position. In that conflict and how that has evolved, if at all, can you help us to better understand China's thinking when it comes to that conflict? There's、yes. a lot of debate over where China is, really. Right, right. This is another frequently asked question、sure. uh, to China.、Uh, we can understand why people are so interested in China's position、uh, because、uh, we are. 
considered as、uh, one of the most important major player on world stage. So for us, the root cause for why the Ukrainian issue、um, evolved to what it is now is、uh, the deficiency of the European security architecture. History has repeatedly proved that only by respecting others' safety and maintaining common safety of everyone. So this is a kind of pattern that SCO I said earlier. Uh, was trying to uh, uh, focus on. Can we ultimately guarantee our own safety? Trying to achieve absolute security in a way that harms the security interests of others will only result in absolute insecurity for all, which will inevitably lead to conflicts and wars.、Um, just like in a neighborhood,、uh, we all live in a neighborhood. If you keep expanding your yard, your backyard, or your front yard, refuse to set boundaries, move your fence、uh, in the direction of your neighbors, one step after another, and ignore the repeated warning、uh, of your neighbors, sooner or later your neighbors will certainly fight fight with you <laughs>、uh, to resolve the Ukraine issue.、Uh, all parties concerned should show the political will. Restart peace talks and jointly build a balanced, effective, and sustainable European security architecture on the basis of accommodating accommodating each other's、uh, legitimate concerns. Well,、uh, many times we feel that we wanted to do more、uh, because、uh, you know the international community hope us to do more. But the fact is, China is not a part of Ukraine issue. That said, we are still working very hard trying to promote peace and talks rather than fueling the fire.、Uh, we believe that national sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries must be respected. As, as I said、uh, earlier, the purposes and principles of the UN Charter must be upheld. The legitimate security concerns of all countries must be taken seriously, and all efforts conducing to the peaceful settlement must be supported. China's stance is fair and objective. This position does not only apply to the Ukrainian crisis, but also somewhere else.、Uh, if something similar happens、uh, elsewhere. China will take the same position. This is also the common position of many uh, uh, other countries, including, uh, uh, for example, India, uh, Brazil, uh, South Africa,、um, Indonesia,、uh, just name a few. Mr. Xu, even before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on February twenty fourth, a lot of American pundits and analysts were drawing parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. They were saying, you know. Today's Ukraine is tomorrow's Taiwan, or or words to that effect. My sense is that the more sophisticated analysts understood that there are very very significant differences, and that you know people who draw this direct line、uh, from Ukraine to Taiwan have it you know fundamentally wrong. I I would agree, but but it would also be incorrect to imagine that Beijing isn't thinking about Ukraine in some relation to Taiwan. It, it certainly matters. Surely people in Beijing are thinking about. 
responses to Russia's invasion, uh, about the severity of sanctions that were imposed, uh, about what, for now at least, is a much greater transatlantic solidarity and, and much more. Can you give us some insight into how what is happening in Ukraine is impacting how Beijing is thinking about Taiwan? Well, apparently there is a, a essential difference between the Taiwan question and the Ukraine issue. Taiwan has never been a country. It's part of China. So I do not have to repeat our long-standing position on China. I guess you un- you understand yeah, so very our audience, clearly. Yeah. So uh, uh, I guess uh, the reason why the Western world is so concerned about uh, uh, the Taiwan question uh, in the pretext of the Ukrainian crisis is uh, they uh, are concerned about the possible use of a force uh, on the on the part of the Chinese government to resolve uh, this this sure. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, if if people look at the all the uh, official documents, especially uh, the three white papers uh, released by the Chinese government, the latest one is the uh, one that is released uh, in this August you will see that uh, most part of these documents and also the speeches delivered delivered by our leadership, especially President Xi Jinping, on the Taiwan question or related to the Taiwan question, most part of those documents and their speeches was were about how to uh, resolve the Taiwan question in a peaceful way. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, we will never renounce the use of a force uh, as the last resort, because uh, we think, you know, how to resolve the Taiwan question is an t- internal issue. It's up to the Chinese people, the Chinese government, uh, to decide what kind of uh, way we are going to adopt to resolve this issue. Uh, it's not up to any foreign parties to let us know that, uh, you know, if you wanted to use force or use peaceful means, especially the United States, I have to point out this, that when the United States has been using so much force against other countries, um, for Chinese people, it sounds very hypocritic for them to insist to use peaceful means to resolve tests. That the, the Taiwan question. Never, nevertheless, I still want to reiterate to reassure that uh, we will always uh, uh, want to uh, uh, resolve the Taiwan question through peaceful means. You're right. So, yeah. as you mentioned, China released a white paper in, in August after uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's very controversial visit to Taipei. Uh, the Taiwan Affairs Office of the State Council put out that that paper and. They, you know, reiterated, as you said, that Taiwan has always been part of China and so forth. It also put forward this idea that Beijing has pushed for a very long time, one country, two systems, and that that should be the basis of unification. But that seemed only to reinforce this impression among many people, I think, that China is inflexible, that it hasn't adjusted maybe to a new reality, uh, a reality that uh, one country, two systems has lost a lot of support in Taiwan. Uh, especially since the 2019-2020 Hong Kong protests 
and the imposition of the national security law. It also doesn't recognize that China has changed too. Uh, the impression that people in Taiwan had of China during the Hu Jintao years, I think it's very fair to say, is a very different impression than the, the China that they see since 2012. Are there new ideas that are coming out of Beijing about how to bring about the kind of peaceful reunification, as Beijing describes it, that it wants? Well, I guess you do not need to always adjust your policy when it is a good policy. Uh, we believe that one country, two system is really a very good policy. You must know that uh, this policy actually is initiated, is created um, in order to resolve, to solve the Taiwan question um, several de decades ago. But uh, actually, it was first applied to the Hong Kong issue. Right. And we believe it achieved a, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, achieved a universally recognized success. Hong Kong has been rated as world's freest economy for 25 consecutive years by Western institutions. Once again, Western institutions, right. not according to uh, Chinese institutions um, since its return uh, to the motherland. The Hong Kong people have not only significantly improved their lives, but also enjoyed democratic rights, which they never had in the past. Uh, I guess you must also know that uh, under the British colonial rule, there was no democracy in Hong Kong. Right, right. A governor was appointed to rule. And, and very importantly, the Chinese ethnic groups in Hong Kong were under discrimination. Unfortunately, this is our land, of course, on the colonial rule. Right. But uh, they have been discriminated. So it can be said that without one country's two systems, there is no prosperity, stability, democracy, and progress in Hong Kong. So you think but, that uh, the policy is still a sound policy, and, and that's the reason why China hasn't uh, changed it. But for it to work, there needs to be some acceptance. Uh, and right now, it looks like, you know, what, whereas people in Taiwan who were kind of deep blue, who were very pro-Guomindang, they were receptive to this idea in the past during the Mainzhou era. You know, in, in the period around 2008, you look, they were very, very close to, I mean, when you had the policy of the Santong and all these, these very, um, major improvements were happening. You can understand why it looked like one country, two systems was within reach. Don't you feel like there's any legitimacy to, uh, the, to Taiwan's sense that China has changed? That maybe we don't want to be a part of this China, whereas the, an older China from, you know, pre-2008 might be, have been much, much more attractive? Uh, yes, uh, I know that uh, many uh, Western uh, friends all do not understand what is the essence of uh, one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. And the Taiwanese, uh, the, the, the separatist forces in Taiwan, uh, they, they are trying to tarnish this concept of one country, two systems. Uh, let me, let me try to explain, uh, how we understand one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. uh, the real nature of uh, this policy is uh, one country 
is the premise and the foundation of two systems. Two systems is subordinate to, and derives from one country.、Mm-hmm. So if people try to mix up those two concepts, or especially if people want to put two systems before in front of one country, there will be there will be. Problems. Problem. Yeah. yeah, problems. So,、uh, in terms of adjustment and changes, well,、uh, when I said、uh, earlier that、uh, when you have a good policy, you do not have to change it all the time, it is also true that we are not going to adopt the exact same one China two systems policy in Taiwan、uh, when it is reunified.、Um, so. I think many of our documents has stated very clearly that, clearly that on the Taiwan question, the one country, two systems principle、uh, is obviously will will obviously be the most inclusive and flexible solution. Taiwan is certainly not Hong Kong. It is impossible to copy the Hong Kong model in Taiwan. The Chinese government is more than willing to conduct extensive consultations with all walks of life in Taiwan, under the premise of one China, give full consideration to the realities in Taiwan, accommodate the interests and sentiments of our compatriots in Taiwan, and come up with a plan of one country, two systems in Taiwan. It's written in the. White paper. It's written. It's there, in President Xi Jinping's speeches, and other senior officials' speeches. I think many people, even here in the U.S., understood why Beijing was so angered by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and they certainly expected that Beijing would react, that it would retaliate in some ways. But I think a lot of us were disappointed. I would count myself among them, and maybe even surprised to see that cooperation on climate issues. Would be suspended. Can you explain why Beijing decided to suspend what had been, I think, really productive talks between John Kerry and Xi Jinping、uh, and their teams?、Uh, we are now on the brink of catastrophic and irreversible warming. There's been massive heat waves in China and in the U.S. and in Pakistan and in India.、Uh, rapid melting at the poles. It, it, it seems like. You know, even an issue like Taiwan doesn't even compare to to the big issue of the, the the global climate. Why did Beijing decide to suspend climate talks?、Uh, well, we are angered, but、right. at the same time, I think we are very constrained and、uh, we are very measured in terms of what kind of countermeasures、uh, we have been taking and will be taking to respond to the. Very unreasonable actions taken by the U.S. side with regard to Taiwan, including Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and also the、uh, discussion and deliberation on the 2022 Taiwan Policies Act.、Mm-hmm. Uh, let me let me、uh, point out that this policy act, if passed. In the current way, or if passed in any other way, there is no way <laughs> for them to make it a bill that is not damaging to China-U.S. relationship. Because of the purpose of、uh, 
proposing of introducing such a bill is to give China a lesson, a kind of lesson、um, that the United States will always be behind、uh, the Taiwanese, and especially the Taiwanese separatist forces, which is which is very very unfortunate. But、uh, coming back to、uh, your question about why climate change, well, we have to admit that Special Envoy Kerry, he has been very dedicated. He, he has invested so much in climate change,、uh, including、uh, the bilateral interaction between China and the United States.、Mm-hmm. We highly appreciate him of the effort. Uh, efforts he put in place to、uh, try to help resolve、um, to the, this、uh, extremely difficult issue for、uh, and a challenging issue for the international community.、Uh-huh. But、uh, the stop of climate change、um, dialogue between China and the United States will never stop China's action to、uh, achieve the goals we set for ourselves. We will, as always, act actively participate in international and multilateral cooperation on climate change.、Uh, China has always been earnest in fighting climate change. Let me give you some example. The consumption of non-fossil energy in China ranks first in the world,、right. and the installed capacity of hydropower, wind power, solar power. Biomass power generation and the production and sales of new energy vehicles all rank the first in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the eight years to 2021, China conducted more than 200 foreign and foreign aid projects to address climate change. Before my current、um, post in the United States, I worked on the relationship between China and the, and the Pacific. Pacific island country, including like Fiji, like Tonga, others.、Um, so, climate change cooperation is one of the key areas of cooperation between China and these island countries, who、uh, which are so concerned、yeah. about the rising of、uh, of sea level, etc., etc. So, the concept and the practice of green development are deeply integrated into the relationship between the two sides. So I really hate to point fingers on on the United States, but、uh, I do have to provide our audience with some facts on what the U.S. has been doing. I think you know the Joe, Joe Biden administration has been showing determination in dealing with climate change, both domestically and internationally. But the fact is, what has been done. Their actions have fallen far short of expect expectations.、Uh, last year, for example, U.S. fossil fuel consumption accounted for almost 80 percent of its primary energy consumption.、Hmm. Last week, last week, the Biden Biden administration issued leases for up to 1.7 million acres of its offshore oil and、right. gas exploration. A move seen as a major shift in the stance on climate change. This is widely reported by the U.S. Uh, media uh, outlets. So uh, 
the sincerity of the U.S. side is also questionable in our bilateral relationship. I mean, the U.S. bilateral cooperation with China on climate change. For example, the U.S. Is used the Xinjiang, Xinjiang again, related issues as an excuse to sanction and oppress Chinese uh, companies, photovoltaic yeah, companies. Photovoltaic, yeah. yeah, yeah, creating obstacles for companies of the two countries to participate in climate change. And another very strange example, um, we still we cannot understand why. The U.S. side has announced the termination of the China-U.S. Clean Energy Center project, hmm. which lasted for 10 years, lasted for 10 years, and they terminated uh, in the first half of uh, last year, last year, if I remember correctly. Well, actually, this is a very fruitful fruitful project for lasted for more than 10 years as i said yeah people from both sides those participants uh in the project uh, they are very confused by this move yeah i'm not familiar with that i'll have to ask i'll, I'll look into that that's that's um that's uh, sort of news to me yeah it's located in the university of west virginia actually okay. uh it's actually a outcome of uh a joint venture during the Obama administration okay. to deal with uh, climate change. Uh-huh. Maybe Joe Manchin did it in. <laughs> anyway, I, there, I, there is, I, I, I still think, I would love to see, you know, more U.S.-China leadership in, in uh, addressing the urgent need to, to stop global warming or to, to slow it at least. Yeah, the, 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 the facts I, I was trying to provide you is... Uh, uh, well, to show that even with, without U.S.-China dialogue on climate change, China will never give up its own effort, will not never stop its own effort uh, to uh, achieve the goals we set for our, um, you know, domestically for ourselves and also to honor our obligation to other countries that is uh, in need. I hope so. The rupture of global supply chains under the combined shock of, of COVID-19, uh, export restrictions, other policies around technology, and, and of course, since the Ukraine war started in February, uh, it's been very damaging to many, if not indeed all, of the world's major economies. Uh, we now see very worrisome inflation around the world, a chip shortage that has not been fully resolved at all, uh, and now even potential famine. Uh, the World Food Program says that nearly 50 million people in 45 countries are on the brink of starvation. Is there a way, even under these circumstances, for the U.S. and China as the world's two largest economies to better coordinate to uh, address these issues of global concern? Mm. It is also always this desire in the part of China to work with uh, the U.S. side to uh uh, promote, uh, bilateral, uh, trade and investment, uh, and, uh, economic relationship. And also, it is, uh, always strong desire to work with the United States to play kind of a leading role, uh, to provide more stability, mm-hmm. um, for the international community, uh, to get, uh, out of, uh, the negative impact of COVID-19 sooner than later and to prevent the whole world 
uh, from another uh, possible re- recession. Yeah. Uh, well, it is very important, but unfortunately, uh, well, uh, we do not see a, a very uh, keen interest on the U.S. side uh, to work uh, with China in in those areas. Actually, Secretary Blinken. In his speech uh, on China policy in May, mm-hmm. he did uh, mention macro economy. He did talk about this area as uh, one of the six areas the United States thinks they want to work with with China. But if we look at the obstacles, uh, you will understand. Uh, the difficulty the Chinese side is facing in working with the United States. Let me give you some example. The tariffs is the biggest issue, right? You know, so uh, the President Trump, uh, the, the the Trump administration, uh, well, uh, started the the trade war, and now it is time to review uh, the tariffs, and we hope not just us, including. Uh, many people in the United States and also the international community, all of us uh, hoped that the Biden administration will adopt a different <laughs> trade policy toward China. But the unfortunate tariffs are still there. Actually, apparently, tariffs hurt uh, manufacturers, um, uh, farmers, uh, and consumers. Uh, uh, to be frank, we think those tariffs tariffs hurt. The United States more uh, than than the Chinese. I think uh, that that there's a lot of awareness in the American business community, even among people in the, the, the leadership of an organization like. Uh, well, the, this earlier this afternoon, I was uh, giving a talk, and one of the other speakers at at this is a uh, former diplomat, and he's uh, somebody who's very senior in trade, and, and from his understanding. It's really only politics that keeps back. There's this understanding that the tariffs are damaging, uh, but they don't think that the Biden administration doesn't believe that it is politically possible to drop tariffs right now because they'll be attacked as being soft on China. So it's really, it's hostage to that. It's very unfortunate. It is. Uh, but even with tariffs, with tariffs in 2021, the bilateral Trade goods between China and the United States reached a record high. Yeah. It's uh, 756 billion US dollars. So this figure itself actually uh, shows the very close uh, intertwined uh, relationship, economic relationship between uh, our two countries. So you can imagine that if um, the, the tariffs were dropped, um, the bilateral trade will only uh, be um, larger. Yeah, uh, trade substantially volume will larger. Be larger. Yeah. And uh, the, the newly passed CHIPS and the Science Act is another obstacle. It's aimed to, uh, well, as we understand, to contain uh, China's ability to uh, advance the technology, especially um, CHIPS. But actually... Uh, well, those kind of practices will only bring about more damage, more disru- disruption to the international 
supply chain and disruption to the international trade. Additionally, the U.S. has also sanctioned and uh, oppressed Chinese companies. At present, can you imagine more than 1,000 Chinese companies, Chinese entities, including companies, including you know, private citizens, have been blacklisted by various bodies of the U.S. government. Mm. So when we have those obstacles, it is very, very difficult for the Chinese government to say, okay, let's work together. Right. <laughs> let's be happy and do business as nothing has happened. So you talked about food security. It's very interesting that the United States is pointing its fingers on China again. <laughs> the fact is China has been making huge contribution to food security by feeding its own huge population. We have 1.4 billion people. I think feeding 1.4 billion people is a big contribution to world food security. Yeah, and additionally, yeah. additionally, we are also offering huge uh, food aid to developing countries in need. But uh, let me give you a simple example to show if the United States is doing what it should be doing. In recent years, one-third of the U.S. corns are used for biofuels, hmm. maybe for climate purposes. I don't know. The consumption in this purpose for one year is over 135 million tons, which could feed the whole African population. Hmm. So if you look at those facts... Well, if China is not accused all the times by some American politicians, we do not want to point our fingers uh, on the Americans. We would rather to, well, shelve our differences and focus more on the positive side of the bilateral relationship. We think that there are lots of lots of uh, positive side, lots of areas, common interest, uh, uh, that need our cooperation. Uh, so, uh, well, these are the difficulties we are facing in terms of, uh, uh, you know, if there is possibility for China and the United States to work together on economic issues. What are some of the moves that you would identify that the U.S. might make modest changes or, or concessions, even things that some people might dismiss as just sort of symbolic gestures that you are confident Beijing would reciprocate and respond to with some equal policy changes or concessions. For example, if the United States were to lift certain restrictions on Chinese state media operations in the U.S., which China cites as the reason why uh, there were expulsions of or non-visa renewals of American journalists in China, is it likely that China would be able to respond by reinstating journalist visas for, for American reporters? Um, you know, what are some of the low-hanging fruits that, that the United States could do that you think China would positively respond to? Could it get as far as even reopening the Chengdu and Houston consulates? Over the past 40-plus years since the establishment of the uh, diplomatic relationship, between China and the U.S., 
China has always made utmost efforts, with the greatest sincerity, to promote a sound and stable development of bilateral relations.、Oh. To be frank, as long as the U.S. can uphold mutual respect and equality, which is just the basic norm governing the international relations, China-U.S. relations can develop steadily, or even, as we say in China, in Chinese, by leaps and bounds.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so,、uh, as is known to all, the the, the two examples、uh, you mentioned are actually.、Uh, Uh, considered as、uh, unwarranted provocations by the Trump administration, very unfortunate. And the Chinese side were compelled to take countermeasures.、Uh, the incidents caused huge problems for journalists from both countries to cover、uh, other country or for localities or for、uh, China and the U.S. to conduct normal exchanges. Well. The closure of the、uh, the consulate general in Houston caused a huge、um, obstacle for people living in the eight states in the southern、uh, United States. It caused、uh, lots of trouble. So, nevertheless, as long as the U.S. shows willingness and、uh, makes、um, efforts to solve the problem, the Chinese side will reciprocate. Actually, we reciprocated. Uh, from the beginning of、uh, the Biden administration, I will give you what happened on the media issue as an example.、Mm-hmm. Last year,、um, actually,、uh, many rounds of consultation between our two countries took place, resulted in a, a three-point consensus about the resolution of the of the media issue. These、uh, three consensus include the first. Uh, both agree to allow the other side's currently employed resident、uh, journalists unhindered entry. Second,、mm-hmm. uh, both agreed to grant the other side's journalists one-year multiple entry visa. The U.S. side pledged to address the issue of Chinese journalists' duration of stay. So this is the second agreement. Third. The two sides agreed to approve new visa application of eligible journalists to be posted to the other country. It's a complicated issue. The so the consensus, the agreement reached is also kind of complicated. But so far, the issue concerning Chinese journalists' duration of stay has not been completed solved yet. Okay. So.、Uh, And、uh, unfortunately, some of them still are, uh, are still facing the situation that、uh, they may have to leave the country, the United States, anytime. So they have all their luggages packed. <laughs>、uh, we hope that the U.S. can honor its words, put relevant measures and policies in place as soon as possible. And meanwhile, the U.S. should work to to revoke. The wrong practice of registering the Chinese media outlets as foreign agents and listing them as foreign missions, so as to remove obstacles in the way to complete solution of these issues. These are the biggest questions, actually,、uh, problems.、Uh, on your question of whether or not to reopen China's consulate general in Houston and. The U.S. Consul General in Chengdu. Many people 
hope that this will happen. But uh, well, uh, as we say uh, in China, he who tied the bell to the tiger must take it off. So we think and we hope that the U.S. side must take the first step to resolve resolve um, the, the the problem. You're suggesting that if they were to do that, China would reciprocate. Yes, we would never reject any uh, goodwill uh, suggestion from the U.S. side to resume dialogue, resume cooperation, resume anything that will be intuitive to uh, promote the a better relationship. Actually, mm-hmm. so. You still maintain, though, that the, this was a unilateral move on the part of the Trump administration to close the Houston consulate. Um, it's true. They did act first to close the Houston consulate before Chengdu was closed in, in reciprocity. I think that at least is, is factually accurate. Let's talk about one of the, the consequences I think is most tragic of this about this downturn in, in relations between China and the United States, and that is the shrinking of people-to-people contacts uh, I know that myself, I have not been to China since October 2019, and I mean, it's it's tragic. I used to go many times a year, even after I moved there, after living there for 20 years. Um, this, of course, is because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it has really exacerbated the, the problem of diminishing contacts. We're seeing a very steep drop-off of international students, but especially of students from China here in the United States. And I worry about what the long-term impact of this is going to be. And I can't help but think that it's going to hurt both countries, not just the United States, but also China. What is China willing to do to try to address this situation, to try to improve the situation with people-to-people contacts and international students? Yeah, it is hurting both uh, uh, sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be frank, that ultimately it will also hurt the whole world. As you said, the decline in people-to-people exchanges between China and U.S. in recent years is a major consequence of the deterioration of bilateral relations. Mm -hmm. The COVID-19, of course, um, uh, caused, uh, you know, huge consequences on uh, people-to-people exchange. But uh, I think it is only a layer of frost over the snow. Um, The political virus of the so-called China threat, disinformation spread in the U.S. society is the thick snow that have blocked people-to-people exchanges. Hmm. This political virus has not only made more and more American people afraid of communicating with China, but also made more and more Chinese people fearful of the so-called beautiful country Hmm. in their mind. Uh, for example, the Trump administration issued an executive order imposing a discriminatory visa policy on the Chi- on Chinese students uh, in the name of national security. Mm-hmm. And uh, while well, it caused a sharp drop uh, of Chinese students uh, studying uh, in the United States, uh, actually, it also caused serious psychological harm and huge economic losses to Chinese students and their families. Why? Because, you know, I don't know if you know this fact that um, even after the Biden administration took office, many students actually were stopped, were interrogated, uh, and sent back to China. 
Yeah. When they get, you know, uh, trying to enter the the border of the United States with legal visas. Uh-huh. So the result of those kind of uh, measures uh, is very interesting. Recently, it is reported that the number of Chinese students studying in Canada, the UK, Singapore, and other countries was on the rise mm. in the first half of this year, while the number of U.S. visa issued to Chinese students dropped by 50% compared with that several years ago, suggesting that the willingness of Chinese students to study in the U.S. has greatly decreased. Mm. And uh, we, we, heard, uh, we heard clear and loud that the Biden administration senior officials um, have repeatedly declared that Chinese students are welcome to study in the United States. But the poisonous impact of the previous administration's wrong policies, wrong measures, is still spreading. You must know that there is a a so-called China Initiative uh, done by the U.S. Department of Justice, which engages in racial profiling and unwillful persecutes Chinese uh, scholars, Mm -hmm. creating fears of return of Marxism in the Chinese community. Although the initiative uh, has been ostensibly canceled, its chilling effect is still lingering making ethnic Chinese scientists and others who have normal uh, academic ties with China extremely worried about their own situation. Yeah, We visited many universities in the United States, and uh, we heard those kind of expression of concern almost uh, in, in all of those uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, universities. Mm-hmm. So... You can see that this is seriously uh, undermining the mutual beneficial scientific and technological exchange and the cooperation between China and the United States. And, um, well, I I have to say something about what I heard from the local Chinese community about their their concern. Well, because, you know, This group of people, of U.S. citizens, actually they have been playing a very important role in promoting people-to-people and a culture exchange between Mm -hmm, China mm -hmm. and the United States. However, the deterioration of China-U.S. relations has led to a sharp rise in the anti-Asian sentiment that centered on hatred towards Chinese and the violent incidents in the United States. I was told uh, by many people that the so-called anti-Asian sentiment actually is anti-Chinese sentiment. Uh, so this caused serious damage to Asian communities, both physically and mentally. Many American Chinese told us, told us, told me actually, they love the U.S. as well as their country of origin. China, and that the U.S. policy toward China has put them in a difficult situation, very difficult situation. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that it's you're right that that anti-Asian sentiment often is really wrapped up in anti-Chinese sentiment. There's no question about that. But even to talk about that here in the United States, to say that sometimes you're met with this claim that 
oh, you're just repeating points that are made by the Communist Party of China. And, um, and then I, I, to, to which I will answer, you know, the fact that you are so scared of allowing the, the Chinese Communist Party to score this one point just proves to me that there's a zero-sum mentality at work. Uh, that, you know, if you're so reluctant to even uh, correct this problem and to admit that, that there is an element of Sinophobia and this was created because of the Trump administration's repeated use of phrases like China virus, if you can't admit that, then there is a zero-sum problem here and uh, you've only proven the point. So, yeah, excellent. Um, let me Let me... Turn. We, we were talking earlier about the effects of of, of COVID nineteen, the pandemic, on the diminution of exchanges between China and the United States. And you said that this was just you know the you said sort of the thin smoke rather than the thick smoke. But uh, I, I understand that argument. Let's talk about China's zero COVID policy and how we should understand that uh, in the U.S. and other international media. It's often portrayed as just the product of the leadership's stubbornness. Uh, and unwillingness to admit that maybe a policy that was a very good one that worked very well for the original SARS-CoV-2 virus isn't the right policy for the Omicron variants. Uh, is that incorrect? What do you think is really driving at this point uh, China to continue these lockdowns? Recently, Chengdu was locked down, for example. And, and does it seem that not nearly as much effort is going into vaccinations that can protect against the Omicron variants. Instead, there's so much effort being put on testing and on quarantines that at least from the West, it looks like vaccination, immunization, isn't being given as much attention. Mm. Well, uh, uh, many um, interpretation on China's policy uh, is only focused on one aspect uh, of the policy. So, well, in terms of uh, our uh, COVID-19 uh, prevention policy, uh, people kind of uh, focus only on zero and miss out dynamic. Mm -hmm. So, the we have to look at the policy in its totality. Our policy is dynamic zero. <laughs> dynamic zero. So we have to pay attention to dynamic. What does that mean exactly? What does dynamic mean? Well, it means that, uh, well, let me explain the whole thing. Okay. Right? Okay. It, it, well, China puts people's safety and health first and adheres to the general policy of dynamic zero, which fully reflects the Communist Party of China's and the Chinese government's governing philosophy that the people come first mm -hmm. and life come first. I'm not saying that other governments do not pay attention to their people's livelihood. What I'm saying is our policy is really a reflection of the philosophy of uh, the party and the government. So, for more than two years since the outbreak of COVID-19, the infection rate and the death rate in China have maintained the lowest level in the world. So uh, while the average life expectancy in some developed countries, such as the United States, has declined, 
during the pandemic, China's average life expectancy has risen steadily in the past two years, more than two years. And China is a country with large population,、mm-hmm. uh, including more than 500 million elderly and children. China is also a country of uneven regional development and insufficient medical resources, according to a research article in the Nature Medicine Journal.、Mm-hmm. If China follows the example of some countries and Uh, as we say in China now, lying flat,、mm-hmm. <laughs> that could cause 112 million infections and nearly 1.6 million deaths. So all these show China's COVID-19 prevention and control policies are scientific, correct, and effective. You talked about vaccination. Actually, vaccination. The Chinese government. Central government and also local governments—they are trying very, very hard to convince their population,、uh, the citizens, including the elderly and the children, to be vaccinated. But some are very reluctant. Maybe one of the reason is they feel that they don't have to take the vaccination because they are so safe. Right.、Uh, and some of the elderly have,、uh, you know, health issues.、Uh-huh. So they are they are not sure about、uh, if they want to, if they want to, they are not sure about the side effects、right. um, of the uh, uh, vaccines. All vaccines have side effects.、Mm-hmm. Um, so when some Americans discuss China's COVID nineteen prevention policy,、uh, as I said, that they of, often forget about、uh, dynamic.、Um, they only look at zero. In fact. Dynamic zero does not seek zero infection, but strives to stop the widespread of COVID-19 at the least cost and in the shortest time, which not only ensures the safety and health of the people, but also minimizes the impact on economic and social development. I'm very proud of my hometown, actually, Zhejiang Province.、Mm-hmm. Okay. So the twentieth Party Congress is starting on October sixteenth.、Uh, what should we be watching particularly closely in the upcoming Party Congress?、Uh, will it have any impact, for example, on the U.S.-China relationship relations?、Uh, well,、uh, everybody is looking at the twentieth、uh, uh, National Congress of CPC.、Uh, it is a very、uh, extremely, extremely important domestic political agenda for、sure. us.、Uh, Uh, I think the United States will be watching at it, and、uh, the world will be watching at it, and I think、uh, it will be a a very comprehensive. There will be a very comprehensive discussion、uh, on all issues related to China's future domestic、uh, development、sure. agenda, and also、uh, our international agenda in the、uh, five years or maybe. In the long run,、mm-hmm. as every party congress does,、uh, I guess people can expect that uh, uh, President Xi Jinping will be delivering a very important speech mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. on all the important issues uh, uh, I mentioned. So, concerning the impact of this、uh, congress to the China-U.S. relationship, I'm not part of the、uh, group that have been working on 
the preparation and also drafting uh, the documents for the Congress. But uh, as a career diplomat uh, and as a Chinese official, I can say that you know the our opinion on the international relationship will be a big one of the uh, big topic uh, in the Congress. Yes, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, uh, China-U.S. relationship by itself will be discussed. I think there will, it will be discussed, but I'm not sure whether the outside world will be able to read something in particular about this relationship. But I think uh, what we discussed in general in this Congress and what would be delivered by uh, President Xi Jinping's speech will provide a large degree of uh, predictability mm. and stability mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. for the bilateral relationship between China and the United States uh, on the side of the Chinese. In terms of damage to China's image among Americans, probably there isn't a single issue in recent years that has loomed larger than Xinjiang and the the large-scale detention of Uyghur and other Muslim people there. Now, I am very familiar, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, with the official Chinese position on this, that this was a response to problems of religious extremism and separatism that led to acts of terrorism, uh, that the program's intent is to, you know, to provide language and vocational training to people to help them to assimilate into society and become productive, you know, members of 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 society. So I don't think we need to repeat any of that. But as a diplomat, one of the skills you must have is the ability to see things from the other side and to try to understand those views, even if you don't agree, even if you don't share them. So let me ask you this: If you were asked, you know, by a, a by a Chinese colleague of yours, by someone in the foreign ministry, to explain, having you know understood the Americans for so long, explain why. Is the issue of Xinjiang so emotionally impactful for Americans? Why do Americans seem to care so much about it? And explain that from the point of view of of Americans. How would you explain that to a senior party leader who asked you? Uh, I'll try to uh, explain it from the U.S. perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's but what before thinking. that, before that, I have to say that China's affairs must be seen from a Chinese perspective. What we are asking for the United States is please respect our perspective because we have a very special national condition. And we believe that we have the right to uh, enforce our policies, to adopt our policies and solve our issues according to how we understand it. And the most important thing is we have to... uh, you know, look at what is going on in Xinjiang uh, on the basis of facts. So you told me that uh, uh, you kind of more understand uh, what is going on in in Xinjiang. But actually, um, I don't think all Americans uh, understand or are willing to try to understand what is going on in Xinjiang. Um, well, Lots of uh, U.S. politicians, uh, um, you know, uh, describe what is going on in Xinjiang as genocide and forced labor. Uh-huh. Their c- conclusion, unfortunately, are often based on some anti-China forces 
lies. I have to use. I hate to use the word, but I have to say, they are lies or so-called satellite images that mistake some residential buildings or factories for the so-called concentration camps. I'm just giving you some. Some, sure, but but some, if we only know, look at at what China has has talked about openly, yeah, and just let's stick to only those things that there are re-education centers through which a large number of people have been put, and it's not voluntary. We all know this. This is all accepted. We don't need to. I don't want to talk about genocide. I don't want to talk about anything. I don't want to talk even about forced labor. I just want to hear. Your understanding of why you think Americans are so emotionally attached to this issue is it? Are you saying it's just because they've believed lies, or is there more to it? Uh, I think there are two groups of Americans. Okay.、Here. So one group is U.S. politicians,、mm-hmm. uh, especially those uh, hawkish, uh, China hawkish. Sure.、Uh, well, they have never been to China. They have never been to Xinjiang.、Uh, They only want to, well, make to judge、uh, Xinjiang, to judge China according to the information they get, which is very limited, which is could be very misleading,、uh, which uh, uh, could, you know, be lies, just、right. as I said earlier.、Uh-huh. And、uh, we try to approach them, reach out to them, and、uh, exchange ideas with them on. Telling them what exactly happened in in China, in Xinjiang, and what is the reason for the autonomous region government to, and also the central government to take、uh, the very firm measures、uh, that are in place.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, we will not provide those、uh, opportunities, even to explain, even to、uh, provide the facts.、Mm-hmm. So they totally reject to hear. The facts provided to us.、Uh, I don't know what is the reason. Maybe they are too busy. <laughs> Maybe、huh. they do not want to talk with Chinese、uh, at all. So another group of people, I think, regular American citizens.、Mm-hmm. They are raised in a very different culture uh, uh, as the Chinese.、Uh, so they、uh, attach different importance to the concept of human rights.、Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, as you can imagine, that、uh, they do not listen to Chinese media reports. They listen to Fox News or CNN, or they read New York Times or Washington Post,、mm-hmm. etc. It's very natural. So I, I I guess they they will be very easily influenced、uh, by the description、uh, from U.S. politicians. And also the news outlets, the media outlets、uh, description on uh, 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 on Xinjiang. Uh-huh. Uh, I would say that、um, they have been influenced by misinformation and disinformation. I I believe that if they can be exposed to、uh, the facts, to Uh, the the realities in Xinjiang. I think that they will have a better understanding of why、uh, the Chinese government will、uh, adopt the policy we have been、uh, putting in place. And actually, we are very proud of what has been achieved in Xinjiang because、uh, our way of uh, uh, countering terrorism and extremism 
uh, are more effective uh, than the Western practices. Uh -huh. uh, you said that uh, some people are accepted by the uh, um, kind of a boarding school, uh, as we in describing China, uh, to uh, accept um, education on laws and to uh, accept education on how to, you know, respect uh, lives, uh, etc. And also, uh, who were offered opportunities to learn some uh, skills uh, for living, etc., etc. Uh, these are very effective ways um, for those people to stay away from extreme ideology and terrorism. We do not want to wait until they, those people, especially the younger generation, have to be put into prison. We take preventive actions for them to stay away from these extreme ideologies. But you can and understand we have how, been very successful. Yeah, but you can understand how that preemptive approach would really bother a lot of Americans, the idea that somebody who has the potential to commit some kind of crime uh, just because they fit a particular profile of, of expression of religious beliefs or, or other practices, even dietary restrictions and things like that, that based on this information, you would you would say, well, this person should be re-educated now. You can see what that why. I mean, if you were to explain, as I, I tried to suggest to a party official, uh, why it is that Americans object to this, I think you know it's. I think it's clear uh, that these types of practices would run very much counter to a lot of basic uh, American precepts about. Uh, about law. So, I mean, I think it's important for, for people to understand why this elicits such a strong emotional uh, impact. And maybe that does predispose them to think the worst. Maybe it does make them, you know, uh, maybe more suggestible to what some of the more hawkish politicians are, are saying. Now, I understand that, that it's difficult, given your position, again, to answer a question like this, but I want to ask anyway, are there things that you think that China has done in its public diplomacy that you believe have created unintended or unhelpful perceptions and actually have set back China's diplomacy, its public diplomatic efforts? Uh, I think in most cases, uh, this kind of scenario happened due to the misreading of China's legitimate and necessary responses to provocations, hostile and wrong words and deeds toward China. So when responding to those wrongdoings on China, we tend to be very firm, uh, very uh, angry, and very affirmative. So those kind of response uh, normally is considered as uh, well, assertive. <laughs> You're talking but, about uh, the wolf warrior kind of approach that, that, that China takes. So when Zhao Lijian on the podium <laughs> uh, uses very, very strong language in response to some American provocation, you, you think that it's just misperception on American part that they Yeah, don't... yeah. Wolf warrior is the description uh, that is imposed on Chinese right. diplomats. What, what, what would you call it? Just assertive? Well, I wouldn't even use the word assertive. 
I think the language used by him or other uh, Chinese diplomats are, are stronger uh, than others. But I think they are just trying to tell, uh, to express their strong feeling on the uh, wrongdoings imposed on China. I think they have the right to express uh, emotionally on what they think. So uh, we do have uh, some obstacles um, in telling a better uh, China story, mm -hmm. uh, as you said. Uh, well, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we meet with a lot of American people who are very biased against China. Uh, so whatever you tell them, they will just not believe in it. <laughs> they will describe uh, whatever the Chinese government or Chinese government official uh, have been trying to tell them as propaganda, uh, which is very unfortunate. And uh, we want to describe those kind of people as people who pretend to be asleep. You can never wake uh, people who pretend to be <laughs> asleep. <laughs> but uh, we also uh, meet with lots of uh, American friends that are very interested in, in Chinese culture, Chinese uh, political system, and the Chinese economic development, and the Chinese uh, uh, social aspiration, etc., etc. And they are very interested in the China stories uh, that are not so welcoming by another group of American sure, people. Yeah. So you asked about what is holding China back. Uh, so uh, our job as diplomats, uh, as Chinese officials, our job is try to provide facts. Mm -hmm. If facts won't be accepted by some people in the Western world, I can only say that it is lost for them, not for China. But of course, there are always rooms, spaces for us to improve our work to promote China, our country. And we believe that uh, China's story is a very good story because we are so proud that China has been making huge achievements, not just um, economic achievements. Uh, we have so many good stories to uh, let the world know. And uh, we believe that um, uh, most of the stories uh, will be welcome, will be accepted, will be loved uh, by those people who have an open heart and open mind. Surely you've seen how the Chinese uh, effort to tell China's story well, the Zhang Hao Zhongguo Gu Shi, in the Global South has been much more uh, better received. That if you look at the perception polls that have been done, and there have been several of them, attitudes toward China in the Global South are uniformly much, much better. Um, so in the, in the West and in, you know, so in North America and in Europe, especially, or in, in Australia, uh, it's been a lot more challenging. And do you think that this is primarily due to the, the kind of hold that the English language media has on the narrative in the West, the Hua the, Yuquan, the, the discursive, the discursive power? as Chinese say, uh, of the Western media? Or do you think that 
it's uh, something maybe more historical or cultural that 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 or a difference in 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 shared values. What do you think is the the root of that problem? Uh, I think both. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. reason why um, China uh, story uh, is uh, more welcomed uh, in the developing countries is because they uh, share more commonality in tradition. Mm-hmm. I want to say culture and uh, his history in their own history. A shared uh, history of, of exploitation under colonialism, for one thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And also they have a better understanding uh, the achievements uh, China is able to make mm-hmm. uh, over the past uh, 70 years uh, since the uh, establishment of the People's Republic, especially since the uh, adoption of the reform and opening up right. policy. And they admire China uh, as a pioneer in achieving uh, you know, economic development in such a short uh, period of time. And they very much want to learn from China uh, how it can it is able to to make it and they want want to share our philosophy uh, of governance and uh, uh, our way of taking care of our own people uh, and our way of promoting um, democracy uh, etc etc so um and uh the language barrier uh, is one factor that could um, make Westerners um, uh, feel difficult to understand the China story. But people living in, for example, Africa, in uh, Pacific Island countries, they also speak a very different language, English, French, or, or, or other languages. Sure. But why they can better understand uh, the China stories. Yeah, that's a good uh-huh. point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, language is important, but the language is not a very big issue. If the audience uh, is willing to understand China and is receptive of uh, the ideas and the philosophies uh, adopted by the Chinese. Uh-huh. So uh, I think ultimately, ultimately, respect and mutual understanding is very important uh, for the Western world uh, to understand and to accept uh, China's stories. Thank you very much, Minister Xu Yuan from the Chinese Embassy, Deputy Chief of Mission. Uh, you've been very, very generous with your time and uh, I want to thank you for, for sitting down with me tonight. Thank you for having me on board. The Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at thechinaproj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.